teaching means more to me than anything in life now and community. You know, I have the gift of making a living doing this, you know, which is difficult, but it's still a gift. And, you know, my own inclinations these days is instead of trying to be the best player at anything, is how can I use this to bring, to bring people together? Greetings, everybody. Welcome to 2019. Happy New Year. And also welcome to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm Keith, as always. And thanks, everyone, for joining me. I have to also thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Today, we have Bryce Castro and Bernie Rice. Bernie and Bryce, thank you guys so much for donating to the podcast and making all of this possible Anybody out there who wants to, if you're not supporting the podcast, please consider doing that. Uh, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and make a small donation to keep this whole thing up and running. I love doing it, and I'm always gracious for any support that I get from you listeners out there. For anybody looking for other ways to support the podcast, you do the usual stuff. You share the links on social media. You can subscribe and leave a good rating on either iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you listen on. Another thing that I'm a big fan of as a way to support the podcast is something that the one of the sponsors for today's podcast, I mentioned Bryce Castro. I was communicating with him, letting him know that he was going to get a shout out on this episode. And he mentioned that he discovered the banjo player, Mike Munford, because of the episode here. And now he's going to see Mike's band, Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen, because of it. So that's that's something that's also really important, important is letting these players know that you're at their show because you heard them on the podcast. That lets them know that it was worth their time to sit for these interviews that we all enjoy hearing. Other than that, any other uh, feedback or questions or anything, feel free to always get a hold of me. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of me. Always love hearing from everybody. I get email questions every day from everything from banjo setup, which I don't know if I know much about, but I'm always happy to give my opinions about things to just questions about the episode or recommendations for other guests. And I enjoy hearing all of that. So keep it coming. So I, I already acknowledged at the top of the of the podcast that this is the first episode of the new year, and, and I wish you all a happy new year. And as with many of you, of course, it's a time that we all sort of take stock of what's going on in our lives and, and reflect a bit. And it occurred to me that it was probably last year's New Year's resolution, or maybe not quite a resolution, but it was it was during this period of reflection that I think I started to decide to do this podcast for real. And sure enough, I went back in my phone and I was able to find my exact text message from, this is January 2nd, 2018. So this is the Picky Fingers spoken word portion. My text message from January 2nd of last year from me to the guest of the first episode, Davy Jones of Frontier Ruckus. So he, here's verbatim my, my message to him. Hey bud, happy new year. How you been? I have a somewhat ambitious idea for starting a banjo-oriented podcast, and I'm wondering if you'd humor me by being involved in an episode as the guest interviewee. I have little to no framework for this as of right now, so it may require some patience on your part, but I think it could be very good. I can explain much more about my concept, but let me know if you'd be into that at all. And so that was my text message to him, and then Davey 
changed the course of the banjo universe forever by being very supportive of that idea and really egging me on. And and I can honestly say that if that first interview had not gone well, I probably would have just given up because I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know how to do any of this podcast stuff. I still kind of don't, but it really energized me to have support from him. So thanks, Davey. And thanks all of you who have been listening from the beginning. It was just a year ago today, basically, that I uh, really decided to get this going. And I'm, I'm really happy I did. Today's episode features Bill Evans, and Bill probably doesn't need any introduction to any of you. He's very well known on the banjo scene, and he does a pretty good job during the interview of kind of laying out his experience and the different bands that he has played with or does play with. But suffice to say, he's he's one of the better known banjo players, banjo teachers, banjo scholars. He really kind of does it all. And I've known him for quite a while, and I see him around, and he's... He's always the same, which is to say very approachable, very supportive of other players, regardless of what level they are, very generous with his time and his knowledge and his expertise, and just an all-around great guy to know. So I was happy to uh, get to sit with him. This was the one that I recorded at the Great Lakes Music Camp that I had the, the fortune to be on the faculty with Bill and I were the were the banjo instructors so this was recorded in a small cabin on Lake Michigan with with actually some of the some of the campers in the audience and they keep mostly quiet I was hoping they would pipe up a little bit but uh that's cool too they were very attentive and an appreciative audience but if you hear some random noises in the background or hear us maybe making a, a few extra comments to people on the side that's what that's all about One last thing before we start, I usually do a really good job of making sure the people get to tell you their website, where you can find their music. I I totally forgot to ask Bill this, so on Bill's behalf, I will guide you to the website BillEvansBanjo.com. That's where you can find all sorts of information about his, uh, his resources and where he's playing and all the information that you'll need about him. But... Without further ado, here's the conversation live from the Great Lakes Music Camp. Or it's not live. It's, it was recorded. What am I talking about? This was recorded at the Great Lakes Music Camp with uh, Bill Evans. Here you go. So from the, uh, the blustering, cold, windy shores of Lake Michigan... Or maybe it's sunny and warm. We never really know until we, we actually go outside. But but here in the podcast listening space of your mind, it's warm and comfortable. It's a warm, s- small fireside yes. cabin. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining me. Keith, it is so great to be with you here in Michigan on the Great Lake. It's called Lake Michigan, right? This one's called Lake Michigan. Okay. It's one of five Great Lakes, but <laughs> Thank you. you'll have to refer to the geography <laughs> podcast. I, I, that. You know... It was just a flyover state for me until now. Oh, come on. Yeah, no, I know. Everyone's turning off the podcast now. No, it's been wonderful here at the Great Lakes Music Camp, and it's great to see the scene that you and part have created and a lot of other musicians, young and old, and uh, there's a lot of stuff happening here, and it's terrific. Yeah, it's nice to be able to to collaborate with both domestic Michigan people and and those from elsewhere, too, including yourself. So since we're here to talk about banjos, though, let's steer this shit back on track. Tell me how you... Yeah. 
Tell me how you first discovered the banjo. What got you into it? Who were your first influences? Well, what changed my life? My life was changed when I was seven years old and turned on Ed Sullivan on February 8th, 1964. Ah, yes. And uh, that was a Sunday night, and uh, that was the Beatles' first appearance mm-hmm. in, on American television. And uh, and I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, in a suburban neighborhood and with a lot of kids that lived on the block. And Pronounce I, that name again? Norfolk. That's, I'm, that's the native right. pronunciation, okay. Norfolk. Take more that, geography, that, that, that sense of theme. That may be the one thing that's the most useful thing that everyone learns from this broadcast <laughs> is how to pronounce Norfolk. Norfolk. And, um, you know, I felt like I went to school the next day as a seven-year-old kid knowing what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Which was? Be a musician. Oh, okay. Do that. And so, you know, I took up fingerstyle guitar teaching myself as like an eight-year-old. And and then um, you owned a guitar already? Uh, no, I had to wait. I had a borrowed guitar, and I had to cut grass on the block for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And I would go buy records, and uh, with that money, and I did get a guitar finally for Christmas. I knew it was coming, and uh, and then just learned finger picking. I really wanted an electric guitar, but that was not allowed in the house. Yeah, so right. so I got an acoustic guitar, and then. It's, I learned in a funny way that is very indicative of my life, though, you'll connect with this, is that I would go down to the music store, the corner music store, and buy Peter, Paul, and Mary guitar tablature books. And I would learn how to play fingerstyle guitar without actually hearing the record. Oh, wow. And, yeah. for, and for some reason, and so, you know, now I'm a teacher, you know, and I, and I try not to use, overly use tab like everybody else, but I learned how to play guitar by reading tab, but not really knowing what it's supposed to sound like. It was an odd thing. And that tab was still more strummy oriented, I imagine. Well, finger picking, you know, a lot of they did have a, a bit of, of that? that they were. Okay. Finger, and then, and then if a song had like a B7 chord or something that I couldn't fret as a nine year old, I just didn't learn that song. So, so I would, yeah. I just skipped that one or I would play the song and skip that chord, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, then I got into junior high school, not, you know, still into, you know, the Beatles and the birds and later Leon Russell and things like that, Eric Clapton. And then, you know, I've been, but on Saturday nights I would watch Hee Haw. And of course there's that segment of the show where Roy Clark and Buck Owens would play Cripple Creek yeah. and tell a joke. And I watched Roy Clark play, and I, and I said, well, you know, I know how to f- fingerstyle play on the guitar. I'm hearing melodies there on the banjo that I didn't really know I could play on guitar. And, of course, mm-hmm. there was worlds of guitar player playing that I never heard as a kid. You, yeah. know? Uh, you know, Mississippi John Hurt. I heard Leo Kotke. You know, of course, you can play melodies on the guitar, but I somehow didn't know that. And I thought, the banjo sounds great. I could hear it. That's really great. And I just got attracted for that reason and then cajoled family into a banjo for Christmas and it ended up being a relatively high-end instrument wow. uh, for the day, an Aria Pro 2, which cost about $220 in 1970, 71 money. So that was a lot. And a funny story about that first banjo, you know, I'd asked for it and we went down to the music store and saw it and then came home and I just lived with my mom and, and, um, I realized, well, we brought it home, but she put it under the bed. It was like early December or something. And she said, Oh, and she said, don't, don't play it until Christmas. And of course, mom goes out to the grocery store. You go under, you look at the banjo and you play it. And, and, uh, I did that while she was gone and I opened the case and I saw that 
that the resonator had cracked and all the binding had kind of come out you uh-huh. know, around the resonator. And so I had this really tough existential dilemma. Of as, knowing that as, there was this problem. Yeah, I'm not supposed to look at the banjo, but yet I know that it's broken. Was this supposed to be a new instrument? Yeah, well, when I played in the store, I didn't see it. And so... It, it wasn't sold to you as a, a used instrument, though, no, or a secondhand? No, no, no. Okay. And, uh, and so what ended up happening was, of course, I said something to my mom. And so she looked at it, and then she said, get in the car. And we're going back down to the music store. And it was a, I was so proud of my mom at this moment. She marched into the music store and said, you sold my son you know, a banjo that's broken. Look mm-hmm. at this. And it turned out... He had two. Oh, good. And so there was one in the window that was the one I looked at, but then he went into the back of the store and gave me the one that was... And he may not have known, but he traded out. Yeah. <laughs> and then it went back under the bed, and she said, definitely don't play this until Christmas. And then when I started to play, you know, for you young people out there, it was such a different world in the 1970s, but, you know, with no internet, no YouTube, um, you could just you grab the knowledge wherever you could. And a a general music store would not have had the Pete Seeger book or the Earl Scruggs book, but growing up in Norfolk, there's a musician who's still around whose name is Bob Zentz, and he started a store called the Ramblin' Conrad's Guitar Shop and Folklore Center. That's a mouthful. And opened in like 1970, 71, and it was a center for folk music, and he had all the Oak publication books. He had records that were open that you could play, and I suddenly was hanging out with a lot of older musicians, yeah. uh, you know, who played everything from blues to bluegrass to old-time music, you know, old-time music scene started in Norfolk at that point. And, and that then, was just perfect timing for what you were... yeah. And discovering they, for yourself. And they had a coffee house, and, and I started playing the coffee house on Friday night in a concert series. So, I, you know, I spent a day with Libba Cotton. I spent a day with Mike Seeger. You know, wow. You know, I would, I would sort of just, I was adopted by that community. And that, you know, looking back on that, that was terrific. It was like the internet, except it was real people. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then that grew to they had the Old Dominion Folk Festival and people would come in Cajun you wow know, that's amazing just discovered everything and uh, and then I went to college at the University of Virginia so that was about three and a half hours away and I thought man I'm moving into the Blue Ridge Mountains there's going to be like a bluegrass band on every street corner and instead it was you know an environment of beer kegs and sorority and fraternity hazing rituals. Imagine and, that. And yeah. tough academics, actually. But but um, but there was music there that I discovered, and there was another coffee house called the Prism Coffee House, P-R-I-S-M, that's still going. And so a message here for everybody, and this is proven true in my teaching too, the people who stick with this music are the ones that can connect to community. And that's in part what this podcast is about. It's what this Great Lakes Music Camp is about. And I think that that's important. You know, some folks will take up this instrument and be in isolation in their rooms, you know, maybe looking at YouTube videos these days or hopefully looking at my Peghead Nation lessons and um, plug. And um, and, stay uh, on brand here. and, and, And so the moment, though, that you can connect with other people as a learning banjo player as a new student of the instrument you've got a lot more reasons to play well it's such a cool feeling when you've worked hard on a tune maybe by yourself and you might be frustrated but that that moment you get a taste of being able to really play a song with other people and hear how good it sounds and how much energy that gives you that really yeah can can rejuvenate your your spirit and keep you going even when you maybe don't have those people to play with yeah and there's a list of things you know those of you out there who are learning that you need to that you will learn when you start to play with other people and and you can't 
hardly learn them from looking at a tab of a tune. Right. And in my own teaching, I try to instill that in people, but it's still not the same thing as jumping into a real jam session. And I would just encourage everybody to have a certain sense of fearlessness about it and, and don't be afraid of making mistakes. You know, what I tell people is that if you're in tune and you're in rhythm to the best extent that you can, then you're going to be welcome. And, you know, if you can find a slow jam and, uh, you know, Alan Mundy has this great phrase that he and Joe Carr cooked up when they were teaching uh, at the Bluegrass and Commercial Music Program at South Plains College in Leveland, Texas. Uh, they, they, I think they even wrote a song. It's called, We Just Wanted to Teach You GC and D Chords. We Didn't Mean to Change Your Life. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and again, for, and, you know, a lot of the people I come into contact, well, young and old, but even for older folks, you know, you can take this instrument up in your 60s, in your 70s, and, and you get a little bit of skill on it. You don't have to be Earl Scruggs or Noam Pekelny or Allison Brown, and you can play with other people. And what do you think the other lessons are that you get from playing with people that wouldn't just never occur to you when, when you're isolated and teaching yourself? Right. Well, that's a great question. Well, you know, when you're playing by yourself, you can use a metronome. You know, mm-hmm. if you have enough courage and uh, and you get that, though, in real life and music breathes, of course. So you might be playing with people where, you know, they might speed up a little bit, might slow down. Not a little quite bit. metronomic. But but but, you know, I think that for me, my best experiences playing live on stage is when I'm not focused on myself, but I'm actually listening to what everybody else is playing and trying to support them and then there'll be my moment but i'm still kind of even relying on grooving on the rhythm to the best extent that i can even when i'm playing and so that would be something that i think would be hard to experience on your own even though you know you can go online and play with backing tracks and i encourage my right, students or to with recordings do that. whatever yeah. you have yeah but but the real life situation is is terrific that's a really great question a related answer is that, you know, I think maybe many of us have who play the banjo have various degrees of attention deficit disorder. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a certain psyche, it, it seems like. Well, there's such attention to detail, whether you're learning scrugs or scales, you know, you know, or melodic single string. And um, I spent this is off topic a little bit, but somewhat directed to your question. When I was spending hours and hours by myself. I was even in a band at this point, but, but my own practice, I went through a book called patterns for jazz by Jerry Coker, which back in the 1970s, that was the book. And, you know, I think it's still, it's still more or less like a rite of passage kind of. Yeah. And I basically spent two to three hours a day for four years, you know, and I went through every single exercise all the way to the end all the way through in all keys, all positions, melodic and single string. This is in and, my 20s. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm familiar with the book by title. I'm not familiar with the contents. What kind of things does it it's show you? Just all, scale it's patterns? It's all exercises. And, yeah. yeah. Thirds, fourths, fifths, scales, up and down the different minor and major things. But and of course, it's not in banjo tablature for some right. reason. <laughs> and that was never an issue for me because, I mean, I have graduate degrees in music, so the reading the music is not that much of a problem. But, but, um, I look at it, I hear it, and then run with it, you know. So I'm not a real good reader at this point. But I didn't connect that to any learning any, ta- any songs. I just did these exercises. And, uh, and then, you know, decades later, one of the people who I've mentored over the years is Chris Pandolfi. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about 
he was feeling stuck. And this is kind of when the infamous string dusters were already playing. He's like, well, what can I do to kind of, you know, add my facility? And he came up with the idea, uh, not, not crediting me, of taking like a dozen of the most commonly played fiddle tunes in different keys and learning melodic and single string solos, all positions, all octaves. You know, and and just using that as an exercise vehicle. And then that made me think about my adventure with Patterns for Jazz. And I like Chris's idea better. Wow. (laughs) Or or perhaps there's there's a combination of ideas that you could, you know, do some exercises. But what I encourage my students who want to go in this direction um, is to join what you're doing with exercises to tunes because that's what you have to play with people. And 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 then from the tunes you get your positions. So you know you could you could work out your G scales. You know I'm kind of and working out that's the that's the D, mm-hmm. and you've got it. You know and you could work all those out. You could find all the notes in the D scale at every step. And that was a wrong note there. <laughs> and but then I, was, I wasn't gonna. Yeah no, there'll be out. lots of mistakes here. And then if you go to play fork a deer though. That was just using a couple positions, mm-hmm. you know, and you're actually playing a tune, but you're putting to use, you know, you might have played as an exercise, you know, that kind of thing. And, and but play the play a tune, you know, and so then when you get into a session, you can use that knowledge. I'm very interested in this because that is part of what I really wanted to ask you is you have a, a pretty impressive roster of former students. You mentioned Chris. What did Greg? Greg List was my. You tell first me. I don't want to say something student. wrong. Gre- and uh, hi, Greg. <laughs> yeah. uh, he came to me in high school, and he looks he looked exactly the same as a ninth or tenth like grader as he looks now. Sideshow Bob and, Fraggle and, yeah, and, combination. And, yeah. and he came to me saying, "No offense." He, yeah, he, he came to me, and I think the, the first words out of his young mouth were, "I just want to play faster than Bela Fleck." And, 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 and I know you're going to want to teach me Earl Scruggs style, and I don't want to learn it. And, and I just said, well, how are you going to play with anybody else? You know, and I ended up, he ended up learning Scruggs style for me. Okay. And, and he took lessons as a kid. Despite his best yeah. efforts. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, he has created an incredibly innovative technique and has had lots of great success. And so, yeah. you know, that kind of ingenuity and, and uh, creating something new is to be credited. It's awesome, you know. What are, um, what are some other approaches that you take with an advanced player like like Pandolfi yeah. or, or like some of these other well, guys? Well, you know, Jamie Stone, Eric Yates, um, Corey Walker to a certain extent. He, yeah. when he, he came to Nash Camp when, I was, when he was a kid. And, you know, one thing that I feel like I can offer is solidifying the right hand is what I've tried to do with these people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of have a very strong kind of background in right hand from looking at Earl, but really spending a lot of, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time with Sonny Osborne and I've spent a lot of time with J.D. Crow. And I think that most of us would agree that those are great right-hand models. Of course. However, the paradigm changes a little bit, you know, and, and, and these days, especially if you're playing single string and melodic, perhaps there's, you know, some different right-hand considerations that have to be considered. But, but with, with a lot of those students will look at you know, the different things you can do with your hands, the different things you can do with your picks. Ergonomically is what you're yeah, saying, yeah. different and, things. And I have changed 
you know, at first I was just always trying, you know, years ago, you know, I was trying to just make everybody look like Earl. And then if they had big, long hands like JD. Yeah. I was, but I was going to say, hopefully not look too much like, yeah. like JD, but, but I don't do the that. The result in, is the same, but I don't do fine. that anymore. And, and if you look and see at, for a student, for the listeners here, I think the important thing is just look at closely at what people are doing and then experiment and listen to yourself. And so there's a lot of moving pieces here. There's like, how much arch do you want to have to your wrist? Do you want to keep one finger down or two fingers? Are your, is your wrist angled? Is it straight? Um, you know, what is the angle of the neck on your banjo? That's one of the big that things it. that I will do with a student, first of all, is that oftentimes I think people hold the neck too high mm-hmm. and, and because they're worried about the cords. And then the banjo, you know, then that compromises your right-hand technique. Your, your thumb might be way out in front of your other fingers. So you've got that. Then you've got the picks. Oh, my God. You know, how yeah. are you going to, you know, are you going to hold the pick straight? Or are you going to bend them back? And then you could fit them on crooked on your finger or straight. And you just do all of that stuff. And, and, and I I'll, still fuss with it yeah, well, after you know, yeah. tens of years. Well, I've been playing 40 years yeah. and now are really, oh, my God, <laughs> 50 almost. And I just am recently, exper- my picks are straighter. And I just did this a month ago. Okay. And, and I'm still kind of struggling because there's more resistance, but I'm trying to get a more biting sound with this particular banjo. And so it's an evolution, but you want to listen. And, but, you know, one of the first things that I think it's helpful to think about is what is the relationship of your body to the instrument? And be thinking about the neck shouldn't be too high. If you look at pictures of Earl and JD and even Bela, you know, the, the peg head is not much, not higher than eye level. Yeah. And many, many students go way, way up with the neck because they're worried about the cords that compromises the right hand. I think another reason is that, and this is something that Mead here and I dealt with yesterday, a lot of entry level banjos don't have that center of gravity. Yes. And they put it so high yeah. just to balance it so they're not holding it That's up with exactly their left right. hand. Yeah, and I have everybody play with a strap. A strap is, right is from the, the solution. Very beginning. Right. Yeah. Over the entire body, not just over the shoulder. Even if you're sitting yeah. down so, so that, that it supports it. So that if you let go, I don't have my strap on right now, I'm sitting in a chair. We could say anything, because I'm sitting in a chair in the in Buckingham Palace. We're, we're sipping on my ties, <laughs> right? We, we're we're being fanned by people feeding us grapes. That's yes, right. No, we're at Camp Blodgett. We're getting and, foot rubs as we speak. I, yeah, I, I wish I wouldn't actually. I'd be uncomfortable doing that, but that's okay. But we're at Camp Blodgett. If you ask Don Julen really nicely, he he might be game. Don is my roommate, and, you know, they... (laughs) Well, then I'll quit asking. They they, they stuck the two dummies authors in one bedroom, so it's like there's a a vacuum of intellectual fortitude. There's a disturbance in (laughs) some sort of banjo force. Where were we? Okay, yeah, but... um, Yeah, so wear that strap, even when practicing, even though I'm not doing that right now. And... uh, and yeah, position do, do that what Bill body. says, not as he yeah. does. And then the other thing that I will always remind people of, and especially if you're older, you know, and you've got white collar, hard, you know, type A personality jobs and lives, relax. You know, I'm always just telling people, man, just like exhale and let your shoulders down a little bit. Just relax and then play and try to, you know, I try to localize movement in the hand. Um, unlike a mandolin or a guitar, where you're just kind of letting the fingers do the work from the first joints for me, and uh, and getting a full tone, practicing really slowly, and as I play even like an alternating thumb roll, just letting I'm 
concentrating on relaxing the shoulder. I, the elbow is into the banjo. I may not be playing with quite the volume that I want eventually, but I'm learning to play relaxed. Yeah. Um, so just relax, says the guy from the yeah. Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. Right. right Life man. is full of ironies and contradictions, as we know. Um, and, you know, and then and then you you know you find your tone from there and and then you know with a lot of students especially young students you know who can learn quickly you know and they're playing fast quickly there can sometimes be a a direct like uh what is it called uh, there's a opposite correlation between speed and volume yeah the and, inverse and inverse yeah. yeah and earl scruggs talked about this he said well you know when the tune's faster i'm going to play quieter but make sure in your practice that you do have that base level of volume going so that when you get with others, you can be heard because you don't want to be that guy or that gal in a jam session where when it's your turn to play, everybody has to like drop way down, yeah, you know, and then drop way up. And so that takes work. And I, you know, when I sit around and practice, I don't practice fast that much. Uh, and this has always been the case. I get the metronome out and I play slow to medium speeds mm-hmm. and, and just go for real precision, you know, with each of those notes and good volume and good tone. And then I'm just hope and pray I'm warmed up enough when I have to play that I can play fast. <laughs> just for specificity's sake, what do you consider a medium, like uh, a 130 kind of tempo? Well, it depends on what like you're a... letting the metronome equal, right? Sure. What that number is. I have to tell students that the most difficult thing of uh, using the metronome is figuring out what you're going to let it equal. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, if we get, I wonder if we can get a metronome going here. I, I don't know if I have one on my phone, but but if you um, if you got one, yeah, you could let that metronome equal for banjo playing purposes. We let it if we're counting in four four. So in other words, one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. Nope, not not working. Okay, um, you could let the metronome equal a half note, which mm-hmm. would be one click for every four notes. Click. Click, click, click. Or you could let it equal a quarter note, which would be click, 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 right? And so that's where the number comes in. And uh, Thanks. And, uh, and so I will encourage people to, when they're playing slowly to let that metronome equal a quarter note. You know, just because you've got more help, more away. right, more guide posts. Yeah. but then along the you way. could pretty quickly get that up to 180, 190, and it's sounding like a Geiger counter, and it's a little <laughs> bit frantic. And then cut it in half. You know, right. and now you let it equal a half note. And there's the boss. There's a boss metronome that has little sliders. You know, it's a big unit yeah. that does that automatically. I just use a simple thing and just reduce the number. And then you've got a whole new ceiling where, you know, if you let the metronome equal a half note, when you increase the speed, you're actually increasing it at twice the rate that you were before. And then, you know, for me, I've noticed this alarming trend where a lot of my instrumentals are 120 beats per minute to the half note. And, and And sometimes you don't think about this till you are like mastering an album. And you're thinking, oh, what cuts am I going to put in a row? Oh, those are all the same tempo. Oh, Gosh, didn't think about that. Are they at least in different keys? Yes, yeah. right, 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 right. So, so you know, 120 is a pretty good clip. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's how I use the metronome. And the thing I like about it, especially for my students and for me, is that it kind of takes away feelings of lack of self-worth. <laughs> so in other words, instead of it being, gosh, I don't have very good rhythm, 
it becomes, oh, I can't really play that at 110. Mm-hmm. Let me find the number where I can play it. Right. And then you, I, you write that down, and then, all right, now I'm going to just get Pull one back beat, up. Okay. two beats. You know, if you get, if, you know, if you're, if you're taking a long-range approach to things, if you just increase your, your tempo two beats every month... In a, in a year After or two, a year, you're, you're going to be playing full speed, and that would be quite an accomplishment for one year. You know, yep. I, I usually tell my adult learners who are new to this, even if they have experience on other instruments, that it could take to give it two and a half to four years to just feel comfortable negotiating a jam and then having a handful of tunes that you could lead and and that's uh, good to know. You know, take you know, take a long and when I when I when a student comes to me, you know, we create. I I ask them for a list of their goals, and I say, well, where do you, where would you like to be three months, six months, one year, two years, five years, and then we look at that, and I'll say, well, unless, you know, this goal you might not be able to reach in that in three months, but mm-hmm. let's figure out how you get there, yeah. and then I determine the program by that, you know, and and the course of study geared to their to their needs, and then they can kind of look and see whether or not they're moving in the right direction. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Go to pegheadnation.com to see their great lineup of banjo instruction with courses like Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans. You can learn claw hammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes. So as you can tell, some of the best instructors out there, and they all have streaming videos on pegheadnation.com. Each of these courses include high quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play along tracks, plenty of tunes and songs to play, And all you have to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses and you'll get a month free just by being a listener of the podcast. So what you need to do is go to pegheadnation.com. You'll use the promo code. The promo code is PICKYFINGERS. You use that at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, one word, all lowercase, and enjoy 30 free days of amazing instruction. I'm going to sign up for it basically as soon as I get done recording this episode, and I encourage you to do the same. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So thanks, Peghead Nation, and I hope you all check that out. I don't know if this is um, if this applies to everybody, but something I had to deal with is the feeling you're never going to feel like you're there. Like, yeah. oh, oh, now I can do everything that oh. I... Right. wanted to do no, right it, there's always a, another hill that's just in front of you that you're that you're trying to get over so that's the beauty of it it's nice to have goals but it's also worthwhile to to never be quite satisfied with with how you're doing and the goals change of course you know yeah. that's always malleable it's like a business plan but man that is well and, and i'm 62 i i will tell you that you know i feel like there's more that i need to learn now then I, I feel more that way now than I felt ever in my life, you know, like, and as that, long as that motivates you rather than yeah, discourages no, you, it should motivate. I mean, you know, back in the seventies, <laughs> 
and it sounds so old. You know, they're before Bela in uh-huh. the years B B B before <laughs> Bela, there's A D, B C and B B and A B before Bela and after Bela. We're gonna need a glossary. Yeah, yeah. Like and, and you know, we could maybe let's let's call the explosion of the atom, you know, the release of crossing the tracks or whatever. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, you know, they're you know, they basically were two players that we all kind of grooved on. And you know, you know, you could be into Crow and to be into Scruggs, but the guys that were really kind of like on the forefront were Tony Trishka and Alan Mundy mm-hmm. in, in my book. And I know they were players that I didn't hear, and I'm not trying to downplay anyone else. I mean I I could create a list of forty or fifty great players in yeah. the seventies, but those were the people that had publications and had, you know, had records out. And and the interesting thing for me, listening to those guys, and I've, I know them both very well, you know, and I've toured with Alan, I've done camps with all these guys. They almost represented like opposite aesthetic goals, where Alan would work things out almost like in a perfect way, if you're trying to get the perfect way of hearing any yeah. tune. And Tony, of course, did that too, but he also was really into improvisation and 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 crazy things and and very much and so. things that were approaching a modern atonal atonality in some cases you know purposeful even by today's standards yeah they're they're yeah, pretty out yeah. there so that was really great for me as a player to draw upon because i could see the two poles and i you know in jazz one of my heroes is jim hall mm-hmm. the jazz guitar player jim hall who is not a really he wouldn't be at the top of a downbeat reader's poll. He passed away a couple of years ago, but very tasteful. But at the same time, I have really been into John Coltrane and the Art Ensemble of Chicago. I attended a Sun Ra workshop with my banjo. Wow. Uh, in, in Washington, D.C. in like 1981. So, you know, I'm, I'm, in the past, I've been into a lot of different things. and But those two guys kind of represented such a wide range. And then... So a brief biography here. I toured with the band Cloud Valley that included mm-hmm. Missy Raines and Steve Smith, who are yeah. still active and, musically. And, uh, and then that band broke up, and I decided to go to graduate school in music with a specialization in ethnomusicology at UC Berkeley. So I moved my wife to California. We had our two kids there, did five years of coursework in world music with an emphasis in American music history and music of Japan. Got my master's. I passed my Ph.D. orals. Then went back east and taught at University of Virginia and Duke University, or as I like to say, Duke Community College. And then, and then I was the associate director of the International Bluegrass Music Museum in Owensboro, Kentucky, for wow. a year and a half. Played with Dry Branch Fire Squad, and, and so we'll stop it. Stop it there. In Kentucky, working at that museum. I had access to people like Sonny Osborne and J.D. Crow because we were doing projects with them. Mm-hmm. And I was, and then I suddenly found myself in this group called Dry Branch Fire Squad. Very traditional. And hanging out with Sonny and J.D. made me realize that one, and this was a certain phase of my life, one could be completely happy playing traditional banjo. That when you, when you actually are in a room watching those guys play, it's infinite what they do and the subtleties that they bring to a, a set of materials that if you're just learning them as, oh, here's all the Scruggs backup licks, you know, with those, you know, th- that's good, you know, mm-hmm. but, but with guys of that generation, it's, it's a vocabulary and a whole way of approaching playing. Is that's, that the main thing you feel like you 
you learn from them just yeah. not to feel so confined, even though, even though on its face, well, bluegrass is very simple. On its face, yes. So what right. I really learned is that it, even as young players who are really into the music, we can listen, or as players into the music, young or old, you know, we can listen to what Earl did on record. We could learn those licks. We could get our bluegrass album band records and learn that, and we think that we know it. Mm-hmm. But when you actually are in a room watching these guys play, it's it's almost an approach to the fingerboard and an approach to tone that is really unique mm-hmm. and an approach to melody in Scruggs style. And so what I did learn from that experience, and I spent an awful lot of time with Sonny Osborne, my two main banjos that I played over my career came from him, is that there is sometimes, how do I put this, freedom within more limited boundaries. So, if, for instance, if you're going to just say, as a, as a student of the banjo, I'm going to learn to play crow-style solos. Let me really get into that. By limiting yourself somewhat aesthetically so that you're playing something that, in my opinion, would be appropriate for a particular setting, Yeah. then there's freedom within that limitation. And so that's maybe... A subtle thing, but but in other words, if I'm playing bluegrass, I don't want to play Charlie Parker licks against that myself personally. I don't <laughs> want to do that. That doesn't mean that somebody else can't do I it. I was thinking, why not? That now, sounds... Because for me, it's just me. I want to honor. Well, really, what I felt like. Oh, this is we're getting deep now. This is like Oprah territory, uh, um, but. When I got to know those guys... This is a safe place. Yes, yes. For, okay. for you, Bill. Right, it's okay. Right, it's right. okay I'm to gonna, talk. I hope you're not going to bill me. We're friends. Um, when I got to be working with these projects with Sonny and JD and spending a lot of time with them, you know, I kind of felt like I was carrying on the tradition. And, and because I could turn their music into tablature books and, I, and videos, which I produced, you know, mm-hmm. for Homespun, for Sonny... I worked on the J.D. Crow AccuTab book. John Lawless did the original transcriptions. I took them to J.D. and we, I, I checked them. I went to J.D. and we spent two days going through everything, fingering everything. And I learned a lot. I felt like I was kind of in, they were trusting me enough to let me be a part of their tradition. And so for me, that's really important. Yeah, that's so cool. That's really important. And, and as a person who has studied anthropology and folklore and ethnomusicology. I, I still believe in community and tradition. And so I felt like a responsibility to them. Does that have a that. lot to do with how, how much of a steward you seem to be? And then you go to all these camps and I think share so. that. Is that, is that part I, of what got you on that track? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, I felt like, you know, Sonny showed me these fingerings to stuff that probably only five or 10 people in the world care about, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, here's how Earl does it. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. That's definitely how Earl does it. Huh. And, and then, you know, by just totally being a disciple, you know, in that way, mm-hmm. I ended up learning. It opened me up to, you know, could create my own music through that creative, the stuff that you learn, you then integrate into your own playing.
I play in different contexts. I play a solo show. I play with Dan Crary. I will do one-offs with various bands. And, and the style, and I have a, a, a pretty solidly traditional bluegrass band in the Bay Area that plays once a month. And um, I will play differently according to that context. And so I'll sometimes have younger students who, you know, want to learn Noam Pekelny stuff and Allison Brown. And they'll yeah. come to the, the, the gig that I do every month. The, the group is called Bangers and Grass. It's got two guys from David Grisman's band. Yeah. And they hear that. And then, you know, some months will go by and they'll hear me in another context. And they'll say, oh, I had no idea you could do that. I saw Bangers and Grass and you just did that. And I said, well, it's because that's what fits in that yeah. context. I'm, I'm not going to play that you know i'm gonna play bluegrass that's and again that's maybe it's just the age you know you know you get older and you just want to do that but but for me it's being part of that tradition yeah there are different degrees of that there are people who who feel like you shouldn't play mandolin solos and flat and scrug songs and, <laughs> i don't go that far and things like right yeah 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 the, the same kind of thing but i have to say now because the world has changed the bluegrass scene whatever we want to call it has changed. I'm really open to anything mm -hmm. and I'm open to teaching students anything. And as I, as life and time goes on, I see kind of less interest in Scruggs style and Crow style among younger mm -hmm. players. And that's okay too. I, I do think that role-based playing is really important for accompaniment because you can't play scales up and down and, yeah. and, diminished chords and augmented chords and jazz progressions behind Little Cabin Home on the Hill. You've got to play bluegrass, you know. And, so and there's a reason that it riled up all those people at the Opry when Scruggs <laughs> yeah. first did that. It just sounds cool. Right. There's something about right. the instrument right. being played like that that's really exciting. So my hope is, and of course, you can't determine the future, but I'm hoping that you know, in the in the broad range of things, you know, there's a side of me that even worries about the longevity of what I would view as traditional bluegrass. You know, when you look hmm. at the scene today, and I hope that players who young players who take up the banjo will, even those who love Noam Pekelny, will realize that well, Noam Pekelny learned by playing everything that Earl Scruggs played. He'd and, be the first to uh, yeah, point that out, and that, and that Noam himself said, "Well, I wanted to be J.D. Crow, but." I couldn't, so I did all this other stuff. And, you know, there's just, it's a very rich tradition. And then depending upon what segment you want to dig into, you know, you know, you could kind of stop the clock and spend a couple months getting into Don Stover. Yeah. Explore what Bill Keith did, you know, with Bill Monroe. And, and then, so then that's why I feel these days, I feel like there's more to learn than there ever was before because back in the seventies, you know, we didn't, didn't, didn't have access to that much. Didn't know what existed out there. You the, know, the more time goes on and the more players add their stamp to it, yeah. the more, the, the yeah. richer, the, the catalog. Is, yeah. I guess. So, so I, my hope would be, and in my own teaching, I try to do this is, is develop really good tone and, and sound through Scruggs's materials. And, and understand how the banjo works with others through roll pattern playing. And then learn some of that repertoire, you know, as you need it, and then go do what you want. So speaking of tone and speaking of, of the instruments that you got from Sonny, we haven't talked anything about the actual tools of your trade yet. Tell me what you have here. I know that this is a, a, yeah. a new instrument for you. Yeah. There's a banjo player who was a friend to many of us in the community whose name is 
was Jim Rollins, mm -hmm. an East Coast guy at South Carolina. And he collected old banjos and was just a friend to everybody. He would show up at gigs. If there were meetings of pre-war Gibson gatherers, he would bring his whole collection. Um, just loved being in the community and a good player, too. He tragically died in an auto accident about a year ago. And um, Charlie Cushman is beginning to help the family with um, finding homes for his collection of banjos. So this mm -hmm. is a 1929 Granada, uh, the first batch out of the Kalamazoo factory with the one-piece flange. And this has the original flange, at the, the force of the skin heads bent these flanges. Right. So when you look so at it's these... pulling up a bit. This one is pulled up severely Quite a bit. all wow. the way around. Yeah. But it's still present. And original stretcher band... Um, an era, a period era armrest, which were with with an engraving of the owner E uh, E K Kip E M Kip, hmm. um, but there's a it had an internal mute as well, and this is not the kind of armrest that would have been used with an internal mute. Uh, original original uh, tailpiece, uh, and um, I have it has a uh, Blaylock ring made to Ronnie Bales's specification. So there is kind of a a network of builders and Gibson aficionados that people don't hear about because they're older and they don't spend time on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and Ronnie Bales is one of them. Great, wonderful builder from Eastern Tennessee. Okay. And then there's even a network of people who sell these parts. Sometimes I think, and banjos, sometimes I think it's just a group, group of guys that were just selling everything to each other, you know, <laughs> but, but um, a lot of times these sales occur, they're never public. You know, mm -hmm. they never show up at elderly or whatever. But they, they have their list of people who to call and yeah. And that who, who built the neck on that? Frank Neat. Okay. And and you know, I have struggled for decades with the idea of a radius fingerboard versus a flat fingerboard. And I have banjos with radius fingerboards that I've owned. And my relationship with Sonny Osborne, some sometimes what he says is so outrageous, and it turns out to be right. Wow, almost well, always. So. What well, is it that you're thinking of? One of, in one this of the things he, he has always said is, you will never get as good a tone out of a radius fingerboard neck. I don't care how many necks you have made, what the wood is, what the, as you will, out of a really oh, good flat fingerboard. Don't tell me this, Bill. I'm sorry. And in my own experience with these old banjos, that's been true. With the new banjo, it doesn't make as much difference to what me. What do you think the difference is? <sighs> you know, you have to have a radius bridge. If you mm -hmm. go with a higher bridge... That changes the tone. And when I'm thinking about these old banjos, I've got a particular thing in my head. You know, so that's what I'm trying to get. Roughly uh, a, the, roughly like an Earl slash JD Earl, thing? JD, Sonny, yeah, with a little more bass, you know, not quite that bright. Yeah. Um, and you try to bring out the bass in your hands rather than the banjo setup, mm -hmm. you know. And so with the higher, the higher bridge creates a different kind of tension, you know, and if you put an, a fingerboard extension, and it's more than I know about, you know, really can explain very well, but there's a certain kind of give in the strings that I want, and I've never been able to get that with a radius fingerboard. Interesting. It's easier to play some stuff, no yeah. question, but with these old banjos, I just really like a flat fingerboard, flat. And, I, and so I've given up at this point in my life to try to get a good sound out of a radius fingerboard Okay, for an old banjo. What are your other preferences in terms of, do you have a consistent bridge choice? I know you own several banjos, but is... Yeah, you know, I also do a solo show called The Banjo in America. That's my main thing in which right. I carry 10 <laughs> banjos, but yeah. the only one of them is bluegrass in that show. I like to try to bring out 
the unique sound of every banjo rather than trying to make every banjo sound like some kind of um, model that I have in my yeah. head. And so, you know, a mahogany banjo is going to sound different than a maple banjo. A deering is going to sound different than a Gibson or a, a Neckville. Uh, and then try to work on playability, not have any buzzes. So it's more about the individual pairing rather than so. Bill Evans likes this bridge and will not use yeah. anything but. No, no. Yeah. So for instance, I owned a Style 5 up until recently. I had to sell it to get this one. And uh, Style 5 is uh, 1927, what Ralph Stanley played in the yeah. 70s. Archtop. Archtop, right. And I had Silvio Ferretti make a bridge. You know, the original, what might have been the original Grover bridge still came with that banjo. Wow. And I mean, it was really used, had deep pits in it and had Grover stamp. It was an original five string. Uh, no, rich, no, the neck was made by Randy Wood, uh, okay. 30 years ago, but it's a, st- but the bridge, a style five. Got that, a that bridge was old. Okay. It was old and, and, uh, and it sounded great, but it just was buzzy and stuff. So I had Silvio make a really thin bridge for that banjo. Cause I wanted to bring out that sound for that one. So I'm not trying to impose everything on instruments. I think that's like hard, you know, you get, yeah. get frustrated. Uh, I like to be surprised too. So try, try everything. You know, that's what I encourage people to do and don't find your own sound. Don't try to, uh, you know, you could have models, you know, but I don't think that we want everybody out there sounding like Noam Pekelney or Alison Brown or Ralph Stanley. I'm so glad I don't sound like Noam Pekelney or, or Alison Brown. What a, what a relief. <laughs> Tonally. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I get you, you, you know, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's just, you know, sound the way that we, you know, find your sound. You yeah. Know? And that can take a while, you know, and so it's, it's okay to have models, you know, and, 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 and go after that. But ultimately I think you end up finding your own, your own sound. So I don't have a set thing yeah. on, on any of these instruments. Um, Use I, each as a tool unto itself to accomplish a different I try, job. I try to listen to what the banjo is telling me obey it <laughs> and go in that direction you're helpless with yeah. the music that i play on it and the setup yes so, I, I, yeah i think that's good advice as you know i'm i also tend to do some some sound related stuff so i'm curious if you have microphones that you're partial to whether it's in the studio or for your live setup you know no i there are certain segments of knowledge that i just have just uh, i rely on other people for okay so fair you, enough. You know a lot. I just don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, you know, and I know that Charlie Cushman just cut the new Earls of Leicester live record with all old RCA ribbon microphones. What other way would you uh, possibly? Right, right, right. And I was listening. It sounded great. I, you know, I've been spending my money on other things, and yeah. and uh, you know, never had a recording studio. I sort of, as my sidelines apart from playing, I did booking, uh, and I did book writing rather than getting into studio work and microphones and all that. Um, so I, I leave that up to engineers. Stopping real quick here, does anybody else have questions that, that you would like to ask, Bill? Anybody? Keep it in mind. Just wanted to open the floor. We've got an audience of thousands here. Can you hear them? <sighs> Sold-out capacity crowd. Yeah. But enthusiastic and... Yeah. and very good looking, I must say. Best looking crowd I've had for any of these podcasts. I'll, I'll say, let me just say one more thing, because this would be kind of an answer. You're not going to ask this question. <laughs> but as I get older, um, I don't want to get too emotional here. Let me just compose myself. Um, I lost my wife a year ago after a 12-year illness. Mm-hmm. And, and three of those years were really intense, where my own grown children gave up their jobs 
we all came home and we were dividing, you know, we had to live near the hospital during bone marrow transplants and then, you know, keep the home running. It was very intense. And, you know, there was, um, you know, it was not a good outcome. Uh, But grace came into our lives in various ways. And so it, on the, on the other side of this, uh, teaching means more to me than anything in life now and community. And mm-hmm. so I think about people like Pete Seeger, okay, and just think about like, all right, you know, I have the gift of making a living doing this, you know, which is difficult, but it's still a gift. You know, not many people do this and think of it. Yeah. And, you know, my own inclinations these days is instead of trying to be the best player at anything, or spending a lot of time working out something really complicated that might reach 20 people, is how can I use this to bring, to bring people together, to help people? Because many people helped my family. And it was all through the music. You know, there was a day where we had let our yard go for months and months because yeah. there just wasn't any time. And I, my students were asking me, what can we do to help? I was, oh, no, you can't. There's nothing you can do. And then I was like, you know what? Our yard is kind of like, you know, in California, we have a rainy season, and yeah. it's supposed to be, <laughs> who knows when it is now, but it's supposed to be October to April, uh-huh. and, and we get rain. So that's when all the weeds come, and it was May, you know, and I hadn't done anything. And I had like 40 people come one day, and it was a hot afternoon in May, students and their spouses, and they brought plants, and they, they spent the entire day. It was really, really hot. My wife, oh, wow. my wife wasn't there. She was down at Stanford recovering from the first bone marrow transplant. And they did the whole yard. And it was like it just stunned me, you know, what, yeah. what, what, How pe- incredible. what people can do. Right. And at some point, she got sick enough. I think, I think our Protestant ethic is, no, I don't need any help. Mm-hmm. We can handle this. And then I think we might all face this in life at some point. You know, I think inevitably we do. We're all going to die, and we're all going to have a loved one who dies. But you reach a point with this stuff where you do need the help. And if you have enough of an open heart to accept that help, an amazing amount of energy can start to flow. And so in an odd way, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I might not be choosing my words really appropriately here, I feel a tremendous burst of energy being on this other side that I want to just direct to helping other people. And so teaching is a great way to do that. You know, yeah. you know it's a gift. And I think about people like Pete Seeger, you know, and, and what he did. I'm not going to be that. I have to do things, and we all do things in our own way. But in some ways, I'm more excited about the banjo than I've ever been, but I'm excited in a different way, if that makes any sense. And right. I'm, not, I'm not of the age anymore where... I'm going to get a band and we're going to get a veggie oil powered bus and we're going to go around the country and we're going to be sponsored by Cliff Bar. You know, I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, go out for the weekend, play, you know, have, you know, come home and uh, produce camps. I'm going to start, you know, doing that now. And, uh, and so I feel really in an odd way, good is not the right word because I've been through a lot, but I feel connected in a way that I haven't for a while because my wife was ill and that was always in the back of my mind. Uh, but, but I feel like some good things are going to really happen. Yeah. Know? Well, you know, y- and, you've definitely helped more people than you can well, probably count. That makes me feel really good too. You know, yeah. and I, I mean, I may not always play as well as I want to because I haven't had the time to practice, but it doesn't matter to me anymore. 
I, I still want to play well, and I'm writing again, and I'm actually going to start. I'm going to record. Start oh, recording, cool. You know, soon. Okay. I'm going to do two two different projects actually soon in the next six months. But but um, but my standards are a little bit different yeah. now, and so maybe there'll be a little more soul in the playing and and less kind of technical flourishes and stuff, and just try to loosen up and have fun. But but also as I think about what I want to do. Not it's not my last years on earth, but you know it's another phase of life. I, I want to really keep keep that fire going, keep the community going, keep it open to people from all kinds of walks of life, and people also keep it open to whatever style banjo you want to learn. Mm-hmm. And banjo for dummies, the first of the two books that I wrote. If one actually explores that book at all, many people probably don't pick it up because they think it's it's like a basic book. I was kind of I was subver- I was obviously subversive if you actually read that book because mm-hmm. the book is really about banjo history. There's there's a section on playing a conting. There's a section yeah. on minstrel banjo. There's a section on classic era banjo and I talk about the black influence throughout the book. And then I teach claw hammer and I teach bluegrass and I show you how to not get ripped off at guitar center on your first banjo purchase yeah. and all that stuff. But, but you know, it's the kind of a subversive message in that book about how long the history has been and all the different ways that one can make music. And that's what I try to do in my solo show too. Did you, so, right. So you do play some of that stuff in your, in your solo show. That's did you it. know that prior to writing the book or did that oh, book yeah. force you to, no. to maybe explore? No, something? it was all there. I've been doing the solo show for a long time. There were uh, some events that you'll hear people my age mention in interviews. Uh, they were called the Tennessee Banjo Institute. Mm-hmm. There were three of them, I think, or two of them. I attended one. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. Everybody was there. They, musicians from Africa, Pete Seeger, Bela Fleck, Alan Shelton, yeah. Sonny Osborne, J.D. Crow, Tony Trishka, Alan Mundy, Bob, you know, everybody. The every, list. Right. Carol Best. Wow. All the people that we read about in Banjo Newsletter, we wonder who they were. They were all there. Uh-huh. And Tony Trishka talks about this, too. They also had people who specialized in minstrel playing, who would, you know, who would investigate and put research into those books, and then great classic players. There's a player named Clark Buehling in Arkansas who is the best in the world at this. Yeah. And so we had the history right in front of us. And you know, we probably have a, had a little bit of sketchy knowledge. Oh, yeah, there was this style that sounds like ragtime that's very complicated, and you have minstrel played. Well, then you could hear it. And then it was easy to make connections just from the sound of the music. Yeah. You hear African players, and then you, wow, it's a lot like Clawhammer. You know, wow, that minstrel playing, I could hear. It's a living museum. Right, right, yeah. right. And so, I, you know, Tony came away from that and did the World Turning album, which was mm-hmm. a historical album. I mean, has some. he would write original pieces, but it had a lot of historical styles on yeah. it. And we recorded on the classic banjo CD a track called Banjo Land from 1907 by by Vess Osman. Um, and so we both were into that. I can, you know, I, I'm not sure if Tony's still doing that show very much, but I continue it. And, yeah. uh, and I've gotten deeper into it. And I love it. You know, I love doing it. I love exposing audiences to all these virtuosic styles. Yeah, it's great. On banjo that people haven't heard. And actually, when I come to camps like this, I never play any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, in all the years I've been at Midwest, I've never done any of that. You you bust out some of the classic some, banjo. You have yeah. your, I, I particularly like your, your home sweet home yeah. variations. That's a really cool and I, one. I was playing it on a bluegrass banjo, though, I think, and it's not the same. Yep. You know, you know the fingers you, with the well, nylon on the, strings. On yeah. the classic banjo, you really grab it and you hit it hard, you know, and yeah. you can't do that on a bluegrass banjo. Right. But, but yeah, you know, so there was kind of, so at any rate, you know, I feel like, um, 
I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. with my life and career, uh, but I'm excited about everything. That's and, great to and hear. Feel blessed and honored yeah. to be at every event that I'm in, you know, that I get to be a part of. So to backtrack a little bit, you you had set up a foundation. Is that is that correct? Um, is that still a thing no, that is no, happening? we're okay. okay. Yeah, you know what happened with that was that the Freight and Salvage Coffee House, which is an art center in Berkeley that's long running, they kept wanting to help. Okay. And (laughs) I'll tell you the story. Really from early on, the executive director would email me and say, we want to do a benefit concert. And my wife would say, no, Mm -hmm. we don't need it. We don't need it. And then another year went by another year, you know, and every six months I would hear from uh, Sharon Dolan, the executive director, we want to do a benefit concert. Nope, nope, nope. And it was the, the afternoon before my wife and daughter were leaving to moved down to Stanford for three months for the second transplant. I get another email, and we're around the table for our last meal together. And and I get an email. Well, we'd still like to do a concert. And so I presented that. And my daughter, whose real name is Corey Evans, and she's a, a well-known hardcore punk musician. Featured uh, in the New York Times recently, often, I hear. Often, yeah. yeah. And she's been in two bands that have toured all over the world. Yeah. She came off the road to help. She's now living in Berlin. And, uh, you know, and I presented this idea once again, I don't know if you have editing capabilities, but, you know, my wife would just sort of said, said, no, I really don't want to do this. And it was kind of quiet. And then my daughter, who at the time was like 23, 24, she said, what the F is wrong with you people? <laughs> like, and then she said, why don't you say yes? You know, people want to help. It's about them yeah. as much as it's about you. And it goes and, to what you're and, what and, you're talking and then, about. And then she said, "I'll take the effing money," yeah. <laughs> you know. And and so then my wife said, "All right." And then we spent the summer, you know, planning that concert, and it sold out. And then they sold more tickets, even to people who couldn't get in, double. And then they set up the foundation. Wow. And you know, truth be told, as a school teacher in California, my wife had great health insurance. And so we didn't have direct cost. I pity the, the the folks who have to struggle with this, who can't afford it. You know, my heart goes out to them, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a can of worms, but however, I, I agree. Yeah. 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 And, but however, we did need the money, you know, in the end. And, and, uh, and it was used, you know, to good reasons. But that foundation is not... I mean, that is, it, it's defunct. Okay. We're, we're okay. Okay. You know, come take a banjo lesson. Okay. There you go. <laughs> you know, but, but, or come hear a concert, but we're okay. And thank you to everybody who contributed. It meant so much for various reasons with that nonprofit thing that the Freight and Salvage set up. I could not thank them publicly because I wasn't supposed to contact them. It's against some kind of nonprofit rules. Huh. So they'll all be listening to this podcast, I'm sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's so, well appreciated. Yeah, yeah. It, it's obvious. Yeah. Well, we're, we're out of time. Yeah. Bill, we didn't even which, t- which talk about breaks any, my heart. Any, yeah. any banjo. We didn't, I didn't even get to show anything, <laughs> but hopefully we talked about a lot of great stuff. I, I think so. Yeah. And, and fortunately I tend to run into you at least, I don't know, once a year or something Do it like again that. Sometime. Yeah. We'll talk more about banjo stuff. Absolutely. it will be great. Well, thanks again. Thanks for all of you. Thank you. Petersburg gal. Check it out. All right. Great. (laughs) Thank you.
And that's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, featuring the very well-known banjo player, author, teacher, scholar, Bill Evans. You can find him at BillEvansBanjo.com. This episode featured a sound clip from the song Granite Chief, and that's off of Bill's album, Bill Evans Plays Banjo. Once again, thank you very much to Bryce Castro and Bernie Rice for being the official sponsors of this podcast. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Contact me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And I just said the word podcast way too many times, so I better just sign off right here. I'll see you all next time. Everyone take care. <laughs>